We sang just a little bit earlier. The words have come, behold, a wondrous mystery. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. We don't often consider the resurrection. As believers, we all take for granted that there will be a resurrection, but it's usually something that's far off in our minds. We often don't think about death or the resurrection that God has promised us until there's a funeral, until someone has died or until someone is on their deathbed. Then we start to think about it. But I wonder, is there a place for a careful consideration of the resurrection as a part of the daily course of our lives? There used to be a saying that played on a caricature of Christians being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. I think to the contrary that the New Testament is clear that to be any earthly good as believers, we must be heavenly-minded. That is Paul's point in the next section of scripture as we continue our series in the book of Philippians. He gives an extended meditation on the goodness of God in the resurrection. This ought to occupy a significant part of our contemplation of Christ, our delighting in him. In other words, if we only think about the resurrection, again, when we're on our deathbeds or at our funerals, then we miss out on the benefit of thinking on that truth today. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 if you haven't. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 21. This is the final section in chapter 3. I'll read this whole section. And in this text we'll see that we are called to set our hearts on the upward call of God in Christ, as Paul puts it in this passage. Let's read this section together. And then we'll move forward. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let us pray. Once again, Father, we thank you for this day, this time we have together around your word. 
We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's blessed name, amen. Again, last week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, we were reminded that we are to seek the righteousness of Christ. We are to consider him as one considers and delights in the greatest treasure. Consider him as more important than anyone or anything else. Consider his works and the blessings of knowing him. There's more to knowing him than just a one-time event. There's so much more to your salvation than just being excused from the penalty of hell. We need to be thinking on these things, considering these things as a regular course in our lives. Paul spoke of the righteousness which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God. We are declared righteous on account of the righteous life of Jesus himself. Faith in Christ means being declared righteous in Christ, being clothed with his righteousness. And this brings with it the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the gift of the Holy Spirit means that the resurrection power of Christ begins its work in us today to sanctify us. Not only that, but the Lord allows suffering in our lives for our identifying with Christ. We are filling up Christ's afflictions, and this, Paul says, helps to conform us to his death. Ultimately, the outworking of the righteousness of Christ leads to our glorification. As Paul says, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There is a progressive nature to our relationship with Christ. And Paul was encouraging us to see this, to savor this, and to seek this as a regular part of our Christian experience. We are to delight in these truths, to embrace these truths, and to seek after these truths. As we move to our message for this morning, again, chapter 3, verses 12 through 21, it is this last point that we will attain to the resurrection from the dead, which Paul continues to meditate on. Now, there are four points as we move through this last section. We'll get through two this morning. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, he says we are to collaborate with those who pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Verses 18 through 19, we are to consider the error of those who disregard the upward call of God in Christ. In verses 20 through 21, we are to consider the blessing of the upward call of God in Christ. Those last two we'll get to next week. Well, let's take a look again at that first point that we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Look again at verses 12 through 14. There Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here again, Paul is continuing his meditation on the resurrection and all that it entails. Again, in the previous section, he expressed his desire to know Christ better, that I may know him, he said. He wanted to be like Jesus Christ in every way. 
He wanted to know him more. He ended the section by describing what is the culmination of our knowing Christ. Again, verse 11, that by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That he is continuing his meditation on the resurrection is clear in our section from the words that follow. Again, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. It is the upward call of God in Christ that's on his mind. It is a prize to him, a treasured possession. He says in verse 20, again, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We already talked about this idea of our heavenly citizenship. He started to discuss this idea earlier in the chapter where he talked about us walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, here, the resurrection and all that it entails is on Paul's mind. And really, it should be. Paul is not alone in this. Peter said it this way again in 1 Peter chapter 1. We just read a little earlier, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. Peter says that we have a living hope. It's not a dead hope. Hope is something that's forward-looking. And he says that we have a living hope, and it's according to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And with this living hope is also an inheritance. And this inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled. It won't fade away. You're not going to lose it to moths and rust. My wife and I were talking about fences the other day and building fences. And there's all this discussion about the kind of material you should use to build fences because ultimately fences will fail. They'll perish. They'll waste away. But the inheritance that we have in Christ is imperishable. It's unfading. It will not fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for you. Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And what? Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John says it this way in his gospel, in in 1 John, rather. Beloved, now we are children of God, and what what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. He says, now we're children of God. We don't have to wait to be children of God. We're children of God now through faith in Christ, but there's something more coming. He says when he is revealed, when he appears, when Jesus comes back, in the end, we shall be like him. Isn't that a beautiful thought? I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I get tired of being like me. I get sick of me. I get sick of me. So I know some of y'all might get sick of me. Definitely. Thank you. I hear that, Gloria. (laughs) I get sick of me. But this is a promise that we shall be like him. We will be like Jesus. That's a glorious thought. There's something more to come. There's something more, something greater. There's a greater grace, the grace to be brought to us at the revealing of Christ, and that grace is Christ-likeness. We'll be like him 
in holiness, in the practice of righteousness, though that's not our experience today. Paul is going to address that first in our text. But we'll also be like him in our physical state. In theology, we refer to this as the glorification of our bodies, and Paul's going to refer to that later in our text. Concerning the practice of righteousness and our conformity to Christ, again, Paul addresses that first in this section. The false teaching of the group that I referred to last week, the Judaizers, those who were of the circumcision, were attempting to influence believers to think that they needed something more than faith in Christ for salvation. Their teaching suggested that either by keeping the law in general or by circumcision in particular, that there was a sort of perfection that you could attain in this life, a works-based righteousness that could be attained by the believer. Knowing this, Paul is trying to be careful in our text. In light of all that he has said, he wants to make clear that he is not preaching that we can attain to this form of righteous perfection on this side of eternity. Paul says, yes, I do desire to know Christ more. Yes, there is more to experience in our relationship with Christ. But no, that experience is not the experience of righteous perfection on this side of eternity. That comes later. Look again at the text. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, he says in verse 12. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, he says in verse 13. Paul says, I have not yet arrived. I don't consider myself to have arrived to the standard of Christ's righteousness in this life. I don't quite measure up. Remember what Paul said before, and we discussed this again last week. I know from experience that I cannot keep the law. He says, I was blameless with regards to the works of the law, but that was not the righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness which comes from God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And the reality is that growing in righteousness is a process and it takes time. Paul acknowledged this earlier in the letter. He said, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. There's a process. Yes, God has begun a good work, but it's not complete yet. It won't be complete until a future time. That's why he encourages us again in chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not perfection, it's progression. Remember also the experience of Jesus. Life came first, the cross came first. Death came first and then after that came glory. We will be like him, but that's not today. The power of his resurrection is at work in us, but will not be complete until glory or until the Lord calls us home. Perhaps a present-day example of this kind of teaching would be from some of the word-of-faith preachers in our day. They would claim that you can have riches, that you can have great fortune. Perhaps you can be without sickness if you have faith enough. They look at passages where it shows Jesus and the apostles healing people who trust in his word, and they cling to that and claim to have access to that power today. The problem is that Jesus was initiating the kingdom of heaven and providing a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven was like. At that time, there will be no more suffering, no more sadness, no more tears. Everyone will be provided for. No more famine or war to speak of. That day is coming, but it's not yet. And it really doesn't matter how much you claim to have faith. That day is not yet. And this day we will suffer. At times we will want I mean, we could just look at the experience of the Apostle Paul alone. I think we would all agree that the Apostle Paul was an example of faith and faithfulness. And yet here he is writing this letter from prison. 
talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. This is Paul's point in 2 Timothy. If you look in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy to suffer with him as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trustees to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He says that suffering is a part of what it means to be a good soldier of Christ. It's not foreign to Christianity. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. He says, think on what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Those are three illustrations to back up his point. He says, suffering is a part of what it means to be a Christian. Soldiers have to live as soldiers. They don't get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. Because they're trying to please the one who enlisted them. He says, the hardworking farmer has to take first share in the crops. And then he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Why is Jesus Christ risen from the dead? Because he died first. He had to die first. He died as a criminal. Jesus had to suffer. Again, we're going to suffer. Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David. We all know what happened in David's life. The suffering that David had to endure. The difficulty he had to endure. Again, the point is that suffering comes first and then glory. That's the biblical process. Perfection is not in this life. That kind of perfection that those prosperity preachers seek is again simply not present in this life. And will not be until the day of the Lord or until he calls us home. I like the way one author put it as he commented on this passage. Here the Apostle Paul, the most spectacular Christian who ever lived, confessed that he had not arrived or become perfect. Paul admitted to his own need to grow into maturity. His confession stands as a warning against the super spiritual kind of Christianity that imagines that the blessings of the age to come can be had now before the resurrection. End quote. For those prosperity preachers, there is no humility before the word of God and the plan of God. So also there's no humility for any who assume that they can be good enough for God. We can't be good enough for God. We can't have our own standard of righteousness. Perfection is not for today. It is for tomorrow. Again, what we see in these verses is Paul's humble and honest confession That though he has set the bar extremely high, having compelled us to seek after the righteousness of Christ, to delight ourselves in him, to strive to attain his righteous standard, he's freely admitting that he has not arrived yet. And so we also ought to admit the same. Now, while Paul says, I haven't arrived yet, he says, I still pursue it. Look again at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it, but I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, straining forward to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture because it does set a high standard. And it's a reminder that Christianity is not for slackers. It's not for the half-hearted. 
The word that Paul uses here, which we translate press on, repeated twice in these verses, means to move rapidly and decisively towards an object. The imagery that the word conjures, in keeping with Paul's analogy of pressing towards the goal, is that of a runner in full stride, sprinting in the last leg of a race toward the finish line. It is an all-out sprint. Paul says, this is how I pursue Christ. This is how I pursue the prize for the upward call of God. I move rapidly towards that end. I stretch and strain and sprint towards the goal. In the text, he says, this is the one thing I do. This is Paul's way of saying, if you want the secret for the Christian life, my secret for the Christian life, how I view the Christian life, this is it. I view the Christian life as a runner in a race and not just in any race and not just at any part of the race, but I am a runner in the last leg again of this race and I see the finish line ahead. And I'm sprinting as hard as I possibly can to reach the goal so that I might receive the prize. That is the quality of Paul's Christianity. That is the quality of Christianity that he holds before us. This is the one thing I do, he says. In fact, he reminds us that nothing less will do. This is what we have been called to. Look back again at the text, verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is saying, I belong to him. I belong to Jesus. He's made me his own. He's bought me. He purchased me with a price. He purchased me with his blood. I am his. Thus I pursue him. And thus I pursue the end when I will be fully like him. Remember Paul said earlier in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's his attitude about life. Also, again, Colossians chapter 1, we discussed last week, all things, through, all things were created through him, through Jesus, and for him. Everything was made for him, including you. And it's God's will that Jesus would come to have first place in everything, in everything, including your life. Does he have first place in your life is the question. Nothing less will do. Paul says, I'm in a full out sprint towards the resurrection because Christ has called me for this purpose. So I'm totally devoted to him. Not only that, but he reminds us that being totally devoted means that we can't look back. We can't turn back as a runner. You can't expect to make it to the finish line, to the goal line, and be successful if you keep looking over your shoulder. Verse 13, again, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Whatever came before was irrelevant. We discussed before all of the gain that Paul said he had, he viewed as rubbish. He says, I don't look at what came behind. There are many things that I had before Christ that are no longer relevant to my life. They won't help me to move forward. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm reminded of Lot's wife, right? Who was brought out of Sodom and Gomorrah. God is raining brimstone and fire down upon the city. They are being dragged out by angels. Rescued, delivered, dragged out of the city by angels. And what does Lot's wife do? She turns and looks back. And she turns immediately to a pillar of salt. My guess is that look was more than just a casual glance. It was a long, hard gaze. 
looking back on what she'd lost. And she lingered so long that she was caught up in the fires. Paul is saying, don't turn back. Keep moving forward. Maybe someone needs to be reminded of this today. Don't turn back. Whatever garbage you indulged in before coming to Christ, whatever you're focused before, things are different now. Everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. We need to embrace that. And forget about what lay lay behind. Again, Paul says, I'm pursuing the resurrection as a singular focus. I'm in a full-out sprint as if I were in the last leg of the race with the finish line in view. This is what Christ has saved me for. And I'm actively putting aside everything that happened before. I'm not looking back. Again, 1 Peter 1, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, Paul says there, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. The apostles had a preoccupation of mind. Their minds were preoccupied with the coming of Christ. Their minds were preoccupied with what the coming of Christ would afford the believer. Again, Paul says Christ is our life. There's grace to be brought to us when Jesus returns. We're looking forward to the culmination of our faith when our faith finally becomes sight. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul refers to the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ that is to come. There's so much more to your faith, beloved. There's more grace to be had when Jesus returns, when he calls us home. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Do you live life like that is true? Are you running in a full-out sprint towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ? That's Paul's perspective. That's why he ran so hard for Christ. And him running so hard for Christ is why he ended up in prison for Christ's sake. That's also why he ended up planting so many churches for Christ's sake in his kingdom. That's why he ended up encouraging so many people. That's why we mention his name today. Because the Lord used him to write his word, to pen his word, and to communicate his truth. Paul believed this. He lived this, this full-out sprint for Christ. And that was the result. What about you? Again, as I've said, we can't be any earthly good unless we're heavenly-minded. While we cannot be perfect in light of the resurrection, we ought to pursue the righteousness of Christ in our everyday lives as a sprinter pursues the goal. 1 John chapter 3. Again, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And he says in verse 3, And everyone who hopes this way, hopes in him, purifies himself, just as he is pure. John says, as you consider the fact that you're going to be like him, you ought to purify yourself, just like he was pure. John calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we are purifying himself, then we ought to be pursuing righteousness in this life. Again, as a sprinter running towards the goal. 
Second Peter chapter three, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works will be done away with. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He says, in the end, the Lord is going to return and everything in this world is going to be done away with. It's going to be dissolved. It's going to be melted. All of the stuff that people are clinging to today are going to be completely done away with. So what sort of people ought you to be today? Because you know that's going to happen. How ought you to be living today? We are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, he says, Waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Be diligent to be found by him that way. There's even more detail in Colossians chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there if you would. Again, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and I mentioned earlier the first part of that section, if then you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's thinking about glory. He's thinking about when Christ is, appears. He's thinking about and trying to encourage us to think about that day in things that are above things that are in heaven verse 5 therefore put to death what is earthly in you because all of these things are true because you will appear with Christ in glory because you will be like him put to death what is earthly stop doing these things stay away from these things Run in a full sprint away from these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God is going to judge the world for these things. He's going to destroy the world for these things. You ought not to be involved in these things. In these you once walked... But now you must put them all away, he says. Again, in light of the fact that you will appear with Christ in glory, that you will be like him, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do you struggle with your mouth? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with malice? The word of God says that these things ought not to be a part of our lives because we're going to be like Jesus. We are being made like him presently and we will be like him in the future. We need to put these things away. Do not lie to one another 
seeing that you've put off the old self. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off those things and what? Verse 12, put on what? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And this one always kicks me in the gut. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He says, if you have any complaint against anybody, anything at all, anyone or anything, you need to forgive. Because Jesus forgave you. He forgave you when you were a dirty, rotten, stinking sinner, when you were a scoundrel. He shed his blood for you. You dare not hold anything against anyone else for that reason. Above all these things, put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. And whatever you do, if there's something that wasn't covered in all of what he said before, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Are those things true of you? Again, Paul's words, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says, my life is the way that it is. I run so hard after Christ because I'm pressing toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And you ought to do the same. We need to have a heavenly mindset. Our minds ought to be fixed on the hope of heaven on the hope of the resurrection, on the hope of our final redemption, on the hope of being fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We ought to be pursuing this hope, particularly in the way we live today. You cannot be any earthly good as a Christian unless you are heavenly minded. Thinking on the resurrection is not just for comfort when someone dies. It's motivation for godly living today. Again, we ought to be consciously pursuing the upward call of God in Christ. Do you? Do you consciously think of the fact that you will be made like Jesus? Does that impact your everyday life choices and how you deal with people? Does your relationship with Christ, your union with Christ, that you will be made like Jesus, make a difference in your everyday life? Are you sprinting towards that end? The text says we ought to. Well, it's a second point in verses 15 through 17. Not only should we be consciously pursuing the upward call of God in Christ, but we're to collaborate with those who pursue the upward call of God in Christ. Look at verses 15 through 17. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, he says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. What way is he referring to? Well, the way that he just mentioned. The attitude that he just mentioned. Paul is making a comment here on what spiritual maturity looks like. In other words, spiritual maturity does not always look like age. It doesn't always look like many zeros behind your tithe or your offering. Spiritual maturity doesn't even always look like the length of time you've served in some role in a church or been a part of some church. Spiritual maturity looks like what Paul just mentioned. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. It involves an intensity of devotion to knowing Christ. Pursuing the upward call of God in Christ as a runner pursues the finish line. Consciously thinking on the resurrection and the completeness that will come when our full redemption is realized. It's having a desire for the experience of the righteousness of Christ fully realized in your life. Pursuing that every single day, every moment. And what you say, and the way you think, and the things you do, how you interact with others. By way of reminder, Paul says that God is still at work in us. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also. If there are some areas in life where you're not displaying this measure of devotion, Paul says God will reveal that also. Now, he doesn't specify how God reveals that to us. If we could speculate, I would say that, you know, a majority of scripture reminds us that one of the ways that God reveals to us where we're falling short is through trials, through the refining fires of trials. He often brings difficult, difficulty into our lives, difficult things for us to endure, to burn off impurities. Peter uses an analogy of our faith being tested, as it were, like fire. We read earlier from 1 Peter chapter 1, That at times we are grieved by various trials, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials that way in the lives of believers. They're not for punishment, but they're to purify us, like gold is purified by fire. And if you've ever heard anything about the process of purifying gold, you know that it often has to be put into the fire many times. Before it comes out pure. The goldsmith puts it in. And then he brings it out. And what he's looking for. Is he's looking really to see his reflection. Because he knows that when he sees his reflection in the gold. The impurities have been washed. Burned away. Like so that's what the father does for us. He puts us in the fires of trial. To burn off the impurities in our lives. To make us more like him. So that he can see his image in us more. I think the Lord does use trials in that way. Scripture's clear about that, but I think he also uses others, and that's part of what Paul's point is in this section, that we need others to help refine our faith. And we've talked about this many times before, but what kind of friend do you want to keep? I've heard others ask the question before of should you have close friends who are unbelievers? I think Paul answers that question here. That our closest friends, those who we keep time with the most, ought to be believers. Because they're the ones who are going to be able to encourage us in this. You're not going to have an unbeliever telling you, hey, you're not showing diligence in your faith in Christ. You're not diligently pursuing the goal, the call for the upward call of God in Christ. 
You need to be running a little bit harder in this area in your life. You need to be pursuing Christ a little bit more. You need to be in the Word a little bit more. We need people like that in our lives. And the only people who are going to do that are spiritual mature believers. And so we need to be doing that with and for one another. I think I read this passage to you before in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul wrote to the whole church, he says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. We're all to admonish one another. That means that we're to correct one another when we're going off. We're all to help one another. We're all to encourage one another. We're all to be patient with one another. We've talked about Hebrews chapter 10 many times before. Here the writer of Hebrews remind us to not forsake our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but gathering together and encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, thinking about the end. And we all know that there are some of us whose names are on the roll, whose names are in the membership book who are not coming. And it's not that they're not coming because they're sick or they're weak or they're hurting. We know that there are some people who are that way. But there are others who are just not coming. We need to be reaching out to them. We need to be admonishing them. We need to be encouraging them. We need to be helping them. That is for all of us to do. Not just with the people you are most familiar with. Back in our text, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul says, keep it going. Those who are mature need to keep pace, keep the focus, stay true to this way of thinking. Don't let anything or anyone dissuade you. Things will come up to distract you. He's going to mention the lies of the unbelieving world in just a couple of verses here and how we need to steer clear of their way of thinking. That regardless, we need to be faithful and continue to pursue this and encourage one another to do the same. He goes on in the text, verse 17, and most people put this verse with the next section. And it's understandable. It kind of naturally flows into the next couple of verses, but I think it's the same idea as what he's already said. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let's hold fast to what we've attained. Imitate me, Paul says. We're reminded that this is a personal letter. Paul knows them personally. They know him. They know his life and conduct, and so he can say, imitate me. But he also acknowledges that there are others in the church who are living faithfully this way. And he encourages the church to look to those people as well. Keep your eyes on those who walk in the same way. Again, collaborate with those who pursue the upward goal of God in Christ. Keep your eyes on them. These are the Timothys and Epaphroditus of the church who exemplify lives that are lived worthy of the gospel, lives in pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ. These are people like the young lady I mentioned last week who's on her way back to Togo, who made it back safely, by the way, in spite of the serious injury that she had the last time she was there. These are others, like my mentor John Talley, who when he retired from full-time ministry, took up the ministry of prayer for some hundred-plus people daily. In our context, people like George Price, who again always seem to have a hug and a smile to remind you that Jesus loves you, to call you brother or sister in Christ. These are the Helens and the Winnies 
who serve faithfully in our church without being asked, without being reminded, in spite of being sick themselves, in spite of the doctor's appointments and things that they need to do, they serve faithfully. And they're a blessing to us. These are people like the deacons, Chris, Steve, Charles, who labor often behind the scenes. Whether it's Steve through his teaching of Sunday school class, Charles walking the halls Sunday after Sunday, helping with nursery, Chris doing just about everything in the world. Folks like Charlie and Jack, who also serve and labor. Folks like my dear wife, who frequently plays the piano with dizzy spells and migraines, who weeps when she's not able to be here to play with us. Those of you who spend time reaching out to others when you make phone calls, when you write letters, when you seek to encourage one another, keep your eyes on those people. Walk according to the pattern you see in them. Their, their lives don't just revolve around themselves. They look for ways to serve and to love others for the glory of Christ. They want to honor Christ with their lives. Keep your eyes on them and walk according to that pattern. Well, again, we are to consciously pursue the upward call of God in Christ. We're to collaborate with those who do the same. We are all in a race. The question is, how will you run? And how will you finish that race? Paul ran like a madman, sprinting, sprinting toward the goal. And the prize for him was the upward call of God in Christ. And that is here held out to us as a prize. Do you see that? as a prize. I'll leave you with this quote. I share this in our Sunday school class earlier. A brother by the name of Samuel Rutherford, I urge you a nearer and growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that we have never seen. There are new foldings of love in him. Dig deep, sweat, and labor and take pains for him, and set by as much time in the day for him as you can, you will be one in the labor. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for another day. We thank you for Jesus who gave his life for us. We thank you for those who, like the, the Apostle Paul, lived his life in full devotion to Christ, in full pursuit of Christ, and who reminded us that we ought to do the same. We thank you for the reminder in your word that there is so much more to come, that we have the riches of your kindness toward us in Christ to look forward to in the future, that we have conformity to the image of Christ to look forward to in the future. Help us to long for and desire that day and help us to live like we desire that day and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling today for your glory and the good of us all. In Christ's blessed name, amen.